0: This episode contains trigger warnings for transphobia, suicidality, and murder. Please proceed with caution. In 2014, a 57-year-old woman was granted asylum in New Zealand. A formal statement from the tribunal in Auckland declared that it would be unduly harsh to force her to return to her home country where her safety and well-being could not be guaranteed where she could be subject to further violence and persecution as a minority. This woman was a British citizen. Seeking to escape a life of abuse and trauma, she feared she may be forced to return to in the United Kingdom. She had suffered this persecution due to her existence as a transgender woman. To be trans is both to live in constant vulnerability and exist in a precarious position where survival is uncertain, and if you are labouring under the misapprehension that the United Kingdom is in any way a safe haven, this is where we will dispel that notion. This is the first of two episodes on trans rights in the UK, and myself and my fellow transgender colleagues have worked hard to bring you these episodes, unpacking the experience of being trans in this country, and looking forward in part two, to what will have to change in order for trans and non-binary people to live in safety and security in the United Kingdom. Welcome to episode 14 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. When writing an episode that is, in many senses, so close to home, declaring one's biases feels important. 60% of the slash queer production team are transgender and or non-binary. As always, talking about our standpoint, our perspective as a team is good research practice. But it does highlight an issue at the core of the trans rights movement in the UK. That this movement is often dismissed on the grounds of it being ideological in nature. With ideology being defined as a system of ideas and ideals, The criticism here is that transgender identities and experiences are underpinned by subjective and thus unscientific beliefs and motivations. First and foremost, yes, transgender experiences and identities are subjective, to culture, time periods, race and a great number of other factors, as are all gender identities, sexualities and social classes. However. What is objective is not always scientific, and the belief that science is innately objective is inherently wrong. All social science is subjective. All science is at risk of bias. There has never existed a scientist who lived without any biases or beliefs at all. And science and politics have, throughout history, gone hand in hand with each other. When we analyze, report, or share any story, It passes through us first as a lens. We cannot turn that lens off. It is unconscious and shapes how we interact with everything around us. The human experience is subjective, let alone the transgender experience. But that does not mean that the facts and figures do not exist to back up why trans people deserve their rights. And the facts and figures are as follows. The exact number of transgender people in the UK is unknown And while the 2021 census provided the most fitting opportunity to gather this information, the UK government took no steps to do so. In 2018, the Equalities Office estimated there were between 200,000 and 500,000 transgender people in the UK. Stonewall, a major LGBTQ organisation here in the UK, estimates that about 1% of the population could be transgender or non-binary which would mean upwards of 600,000. But, despite how many trans people are estimated to reside in the UK, social stigma, prejudice, and structural violence, defined as the imposition of power dynamics within society which deny marginal people their basic needs, continues to increase against this community. In 2019, hate crimes against trans people in the UK rose by 81%, because this only takes into account those events reported to the police, it is not improbable that this figure is higher. With regards to mental health, it is thought that half of trans youth and a third of trans adults have attempted suicide. While gender dysphoria, best described as the disconnect between one's gender identity, their body, and how they are perceived and gendered by others, was legally depathologized in 2002, which means it is no longer thought to be a mental illness, Trans people experiencing gender dysphoria are still treated under the mental health departments of the National Health Service, often by professionals who have not received transgender-specific training or education. On a global level, the number of trans people murdered each year has been increasing every year since 2008. And of those killed, 98% were trans women or trans feminine. And of those killed in the USA... 79% were trans people of colour. At this point in time, and I speak from my own standpoint now, not only as a non-binary trans person, but also as an established academic whose career is centralised around transgender welfare, the struggles trans people face are caused almost exclusively by their oppression by the cisgender majority. Our rates of depression, anxiety and suicidality are not an indicator of anything pathological within the trans experience. They are a proportionate response to systemic abuse and disempowerment. Our series thus far has demonstrated how gender defies a binary in countries all around the world. Despite the impression we may have from decades of media slander and centuries of censorship and erasure, transgender people have always existed in the United Kingdom, not as a mutation a deviance, or a perversion, but as an authentic community and state of self. If you follow the British news at all, you may be somewhat aware of the recent furore surrounding the reformation of the Gender Recognition Act. The GRA is legislation which allows trans people to obtain gender recognition certificates, which then allow them to receive new birth certificates and all the legal rights and recognitions afforded to their gender including marriage rights. A gender recognition certificate can only be obtained at this point in time if you are 18 years or above, have had two medical reports, one from a GP and one from a registered gender specialist, that diagnose gender dysphoria, and have proof that you have been living as the acquired gender for at least two years, which includes evidence such as driving licenses, passports, pay slips, and utility bills. The GRA is far from perfect. Among many controversial facets of this legislation is its accommodation of what has come to be known as the spousal veto. A person is only able to apply for an interim gender recognition certificate if they are married, unless their spouse signs a statutory declaration to say that they are happy to remain married. If they do not, an interim gender recognition certificate is considered grounds for annulment meaning that the marriage is null and void, as if it had never happened. This effectively constitutes an ultimatum for the marriage privileges and rights of transgender people. Campaign groups such as Gendered Intelligence, Mermaids, and Gyres, sought the removal of the medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria, a reduction of the current 140 pounds it takes to obtain a gender recognition certificate, greater access to trans healthcare, and the ability to self-identify in applications without medical proof, or evidence of having lived as the acquired gender. In 2020, a full public consultation carried out by the UK government found that of the over 100,000 people that responded, 80% supported the removal of the requirement for a full medical report that details all surgeries and treatments undergone in order to obtain a gender recognition certificate. In September 2020, the government's Minister for Women and Equalities, Liz Truss, issued a response to the campaigning and consultation. This promised a kinder and more straightforward process, with steps to streamline the application process, increase capacity for healthcare, and a commitment to the 2010 Equality Act. However, the response has many significant issues. The GRA still makes no efforts to address the legal or medical processes for trans children. Additionally, Neither the GRA nor the Equality Act explicitly provide protection or rights to non-binary people. The response also made no effort to remove the requirement for a medical diagnosis, despite the results of the consultation. It felt pertinent to outline the significance of the GRA reform for this episode, since, on the day of interviewing, our interviewee for this episode had come straight from her consultation in Parliament on the Gender Recognition Act, to talk with Slash Queer.
1: What's currently misunderstood is that all we are trying to do is be ourselves. We're not making it up, we're genuine, we're authentic. And in fact, we were making it up before we became authentic.
0: Kat Burton is the chair of the Gender Identity Research and Education Society, otherwise known as GIAS, a UK-wide organisation whose purpose is to improve the lives of trans and gender diverse people of all ages. Kat is also a member of the board for Transmedia Watch, a British charity founded in 2009 to improve media coverage of transgender and intersex issues. Her day job is as a senior flight instructor, after having worked for 45 years as a British Airways pilot.
1: So I spent the the large part of my career uh, pretending to be male. If I hadn't done so early in my career, and I was pretending to myself as well, I wasn't just, you know, pretending to the outside world. I was hiding from myself my true identity. But if I hadn't, if I'd been uh, a trans female back in 1972, come to that, if I'd been a cis female back in 1972, I wouldn't have made it as an airline pilot. There weren't any female airline pilots in 1972. So I've had a brilliant life. And a lot of that was because I was presenting as male. Throughout that time, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in any doubt that I was male. However, when I finally opened the little box at the back of my brain where I hid everything, uh, and that was in my 50s, my whole life perspective changed. And I realized that I had been kidding myself all those years. I I lived with a beard for the rest of my life as an adult. I, I, you know, I had a very strong beard. I could grow a beard from scratch in four days, and it wouldn't look like stubble. It would look like a full-on naval beard. And um, it was camouflage. The whole flying thing was camouflage. I love it. I, I can't, still can't give up flying. It's, you know, it's an absolute life passion. But it was camouflage. I became the chair of um, the South Acre Association scuba diving, and I was a, an instructor trainer with them another roughy tufty male type thing, although by then we actually had some female divers, I'm glad to say. But you know, it was all camouflage. It was all me trying to be so male that nobody'd realize I wasn't, including me. And then the box opened and everything changed. All of a sudden I looked back on so many things in my life and with the perspective of hindsight, I knew that everything I'd been doing was was because I was female and I was doing my best not to show that because to show it would have been too painful to show it would have caused me to lose my job my livelihood my love my career you know it's it's amazing how much we can hide for even from ourselves just for an easy life and an easy life unfortunately isn't necessarily the best life you can have from the moment i came out to myself my life improved and it's continued to do so with every single day since i am living the most productive life i have ever had I'm the happiest I've ever been. And that's despite a recent divorce, which happened because I'm trans. You know, there is no way that I could be anything like as useful to myself and the world as I am now if I hadn't come out. If the rest of the communities realized that that's all we're trying to do is be the best person we can possibly be, there's so much talk of, you know, the danger of letting trans people into single sex spaces. And what do we think we're gonna do in there? I mean, the simple fact of the matter that, that, I mean, it's derailed the Gender Recognition Act, which is a shame, Um, but it's nothing to do with the Gender Recognition Act, it's to do with the Equality Act 2010, which protects single sex spaces, but it doesn't give blanket protection to them. What it does is say on a case by case basis, you may be able to exclude trans people. All of the Equality Act provisions uh, for single sex spaces, don't take account of the fact that there is no law on who can go into a single sex space. I teach police cadets. You know, I go in and give them a transgender awareness talk, and I say to the guys, I said, do you think you're allowed to go into the ladies? And they scratch their heads for a bit. And I say, well, you know, actually, when you think about it, what if you're called to a disturbance in the ladies? Are you allowed to enter? Oh yeah, yeah, we are then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They say, and that's the point. There are plenty of cleaners in single sex spaces who aren't of the right sex. All transgender people are trying to do is go and have a pee, and there is no law whatsoever against us using either space to have a pee. The laws that would apply are public order laws. So if you go into a, a single sex space and cause a problem, let's say you go into a female changing room and flash out an inappropriate genitalia, you are going to be committing an offense. You're going to be breaching the peace. Likewise, if you go into the into a lady's loo and you go into a cubicle just for a, a perfectly normal, quiet pee, and you don't cause any fuss, you're not breaking the law. But if a cisgender woman in that loo decides to create a fuss because a trans woman has gone into the cubicle for a quiet pee, that cisgender woman is the one who's breaking the law because they're breaching the peace. So it's very much more complicated than just saying, you know, you, you've got to protect female spaces by excluding trans women. and you know, trans women, generally speaking, we're not predators. But in fact, the treatment for sex offenders used to be chemical castration. And one of those sex offenses was to be gay um, with the Salon Turing, who was forced to, to be chemically castrated. And an awful lot of trans women have been chemically castrated, even if they haven't had surgery, because we take you know, testosterone blockers, GMRHs. So, you know, there is no substance whatsoever to all of this. It's fear-mongering and it's orchestrated and it's directed at derailing a perfectly reasonable request to be treated as human beings uh, in terms of gender recognition. In the same way as we are in so many other countries these days.
0: One of the things that you've so clearly highlighted there is that one of the biggest misunderstandings is that trans people are pushing for the trans rights movement just because we are trying to cause a fuss or because this is some arbitrary decision that we've made instead of it being our authentic selves, it it being our identities. And that leads me on so well to my second question, which is how does research and education play a part in transforming social perspectives on transgender and non-binary identities? And what changes do you feel need to be made in both sectors for the sake of the wider trans and gender diverse community?
1: So research and education should be the tool that allows us to prove that we are not dangerous. It should be the tool that allows us to to state unequivocally, this is me, and I'm just trying to live my life. Regretfully, society doesn't pay a great deal of attention to science. It doesn't pay a great deal of attention to, to the perspectives that science can bring. It's far more likely to read the Daily Mail. And unfortunately, the Daily Mail is completely scientifically illiterate. And so are an awful lot of the communities that that raise very simplistic questions about sex and gender. I mean, we were asked today, what would we like to see as a definition of sex and a a definition of gender? Fortunately, the answer that pretty much all of us agreed on was we wouldn't like to see anybody try to define them as a general rule, because if they did... The fact that English law doesn't recognize any difference between sex and gender in most English law would mean that most English law would have to be rewritten to differentiate between one and the other. Because, you know, if it says gender, it means sex. And if it says sex, it means gender. You know, the difference is a recent one. But if we need to look into what is sex, what we must avoid is the simple fact that The protests against us being female or male are using year 11 science to try and justify their arguments. They are quite literally saying chromosomes are king. If you're XX, you're female. If you're XY, you're male. And that's utter rubbish. There are so many people, and they're even more underrepresented in society than trans people, um, who are intersex who may have an extra chromosome or just a completely different set of chromosomes. Far more influential in terms of how a person develops in the womb and beyond are hormones. So our hormones king or queen? And the simple answer of that is is complicated because my hormones are almost exactly the same as any other post-menopausal woman. I have virtually no testosterone. Uh, I have Not too much of all the other stuff either, because I've stopped taking it. I'm 68, and I've gone through a menopause reasonably gracefully and had all the hot flushes and everything else. And what does that mean? Does it mean that most postmenopausal women aren't women anymore? Well, of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. It's all about lived experience. And okay, for an awful long time, my lived experience didn't let me acknowledge that I was female. But looking back on it, most of it has actually written me as I am today. My experiences come together to form me. And my experience is not only different from yours as a non-binary person. It's different from cisgender women. But it's also different from every other transgender woman.
0: In December 2020, a High Court case focused on the prescription of medical and hormonal suppressants to transgender children by a gender identity clinic or GIC in London, known as the Tavistock Centre. These suppressants, which pause the release of hormones during puberty, are best known as puberty blockers. Ultimately, the High Court ruled that children under the age of 13 were highly unlikely to be able to consent to these blockers, and that it is, and I quote, doubtful that children aged 14 or 15 could understand and weigh the long-term consequences and that those 16 or over could consent to the treatment. This is a complex case, with many different layers and facets of importance, but what is most significant to understand is that this ruling effectively re-entrenches cisgender and gender-binary-adhering individuals as the norm, and any form of transness as a deviancy that children must be protected from. This parallels the moral panics around Section 28 in the 1980s, the UK legislation, that ultimately prevented gay teachers from being out about their identity in schools, because of the assumption that, firstly, children weren't gay without external influence, and secondly, that children could be turned gay via exposure to gay culture, and that this should be avoided. Corruption and perversion narratives have historically been used to demonise and ostracise people based on race, socioeconomic status, gender, disability, and sexuality. Transgender moral panic is merely a redressing of gay and racial moral panics from the 20th century. The government's approach to trans rights thus far characterises a long history of people in positions of power, not listening to trans people on the very issues that define trans experience. This dismissal of individual experience and knowledge is something Cat has much experience with.
1: You know, We're individuals, we're human beings who have an ingredient called being female, or being male, or being neither, or both, or whatever variation on non-binary you might be. And that simple fact means that my ingredients are woman, every bit as much as any other woman. But I've got another ingredient which floats to the top when it's relevant, called being trans. If it's relevant, I'm perfectly happy to embrace that as one of my ingredients. But if it's not relevant, let's say I'm teaching people to fly. I'm an instructor. Being female is not that relevant, although it it tends to mean that I get more female students than, than some of the other instructors. But it's not especially relevant to being a flying instructor. So at that point, my ingredients that matter are that I'm a very experienced pilot who's able to pass on those skills. When I'm in an interview like this, yes, I'm female, but I, happily, I'm also trans. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking to me today, and that would be a shame. So all of those things need to be improved, not only by research, but believable research and the education that gets that research across, mainly, mostly to, to journalists, unfortunately. Uh, if we could get the media on more on side with them actually listening and learning, then we'd probably have an easier time with it. But the whole general public needs to actually listen to us. Because we are gender experts, each and every one of us.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think you and I mentioned uh, before our interview here that it feels like the conversations that trans people have within your own groups they're so different from the conversations that we have with people outside of our community they are so much more nuanced we all have to be anthropologists psychologists endocrinologists because we live in this state where we continually have to justify our existence and I think that is perhaps is one of the more frustrating aspects of Mm -hmm. all of this is that people are so dismissive and infantilizing of our experiences and our standpoints and our perspectives when we have had to put in the effort and do the research and learn how to
1: self-advocate. Yeah and you know all of these arguments that we get most of them are literally uh, year 11 debating points and you know I'm not up for debate I'm mean and you know that's the simple fact of the matter which is why an awful lot of trans people shy away from interviews It's because we're so used to being ambushed um, and, you know, not not necessarily just interviewers asking awkward questions. I'm happy to field any question, but most particularly by other people on panels. The panel may well have people with very minority views. and anti-trans feeling is, is actually a very minority view with a very loud voice, despite the fact that they're constantly saying they're being silenced they're not because they're the ones that have got the ear of mainstream media in the UK at the moment, which is pretty much all transphobic. So, you know, that they've got a very, very loud voice and they've got some arguments which on face value sound quite persuasive. And of course, we don't necessarily get the opportunity to put our even more persuasive arguments to the people they're talking to because they don't want to listen to us.
0: Absolutely. And I think... On top of that, one of the more frustrating aspects is that when trans people do interviews, when they are involved in the mainstream media, there is this uh, suggestion that there is a trans debate going on, yeah, uh, there as if one, as if yes, as, as if <laughs> one can debate y- human rights. And the idea of yeah. a balanced panel in the mainstream media is having a trans person, more often than not, an expert uh, talking about their lived experience, talking about the research. And then they will have somebody on the other end who is arguing that trans people aren't even people. That is yeah. not a fair or balanced
1: argument whatsoever. In fact, the most recent one I saw on on, um, on television had four cisgender people arguing about our existence. There weren't any trans people on it. And I can understand why that might happen. It's because as I say, trans people are very reluctant to, uh, to be ambushed in these sort of circumstances. That said, I work with BBC, ITV. Uh, I work with Channel Four, and I, you know, I, I'm a specialist in live interviews uh, or live TV shows. I've been called into um, into the gallery at uh, ITV Wales newsroom in order to give a, an immediate comment. They said, "Don't watch the news. Come in without watching anything, because we're going to show you a clip of, of one of the members of the Senedd, the Welsh Assembly, um, who's made some very bigoted comments." And we want you to see it live on camera and make a comment, which I did. Uh, The other night, um, I was on live camera outside my house, thanks to lockdown, with BBC. And they'd asked me to come on because the Welsh government has just launched a a really interesting campaign called Hate Hurts Wales. And they wanted me to come on and, and talk about it. And um, Adam Smith from uh, Stonewall Cymru had pre-recorded his interview about three minutes long. I'm, I'm glad to say, I think they've probably filmed about 10. And it, it wasn't butchered. It was it was a you know perfectly good representation of, of the meaning of what he was saying. But my advantage was they wanted me to do it live. And when you're actually live on camera, they can't edit you. They can't make, it, they can't make you say things you're not trying to say. Uh, it's up to you to get the message across then and to do it in one take which is great. I love doing it. And, uh, you know, it's fantastic to get the opportunity to speak live knowing it's not going to be edited. And I just find it very enjoyable. So.
0: Yeah. And I think it's so important that we have a certain amount of control over the media that's put out pertaining to us as well, because yeah. for the longest time our representation has been absolutely abysmal. And
1: you know, I think yeah, that's one I, of the benefits of, of social media is that. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, um, I think the benefit there is is that again we are self-editing, we are self-editors. Of course, the, the disadvantages of social media is if you've got a reasonable reach, uh, you're also going to get piled on now and again. Um, that's just one of the the prices you have to pay for having a a, a reasonably visible presence on social media. It's a shame yeah, you do because it actually you know it really does affect people badly when when they're attacked on social media. And uh, I can perfectly understand why. Certainly, some of the most prominent trans advocates take holidays from social media. The likes of Jack Monroe and uh, Paris Lee, um, you know, they 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 get so much abuse that sometimes it's just too much. And we're people, you know, we're vulnerable. We're we don't want to be hurt all the time. And you know, just walk away from it for a few weeks. I think Jack's t- handle on Twitter at the moment is Jack Monroe. I'm not here. <laughs> It is,
0: I think, important to take that time to take care of ourselves, because I think sometimes Mm -hmm. trans people feel an obligation to be visible. And it is because of this history of being invisible and and pushed to the margins and overlooked. And sometimes I think we want to put ourselves out as positive representation. But obviously there are huge disadvantages to doing that, as you said. Resilience is a strange concept. As something we build in adversity, it is a survival tactic upheld as a virtue. Cat Burton is an example of an individual whose resilience in the face of bigotry and hostility extends beyond her, outwards, to her community work and her advocacy for those who cannot advocate for themselves. But in these moments when we consider all that the transgender experience may encompass, It feels like resilience is absolutely essential. That in order to be visible, to represent your community to those outside of it, you have to be able to withstand a great array of injustices and even abuses. It seems like an uphill struggle for transgender individuals in the United Kingdom to secure the most basic rights and services. In the UK, access to gender-affirming healthcare such as hormone treatment, speech therapies, hair removal and surgeries, are all administered and controlled by a system of gender identity clinics. In order to secure your first appointment with a GIC, you must first be referred by your doctor. However, waiting times for a first appointment at a National Health Service GIC can be up to four or five years. Gendered Intelligence, an organisation that lobbies and campaigns for greater recognition and rights for trans people in the UK, recently stated in a report that if the intake of patients holds at its current rate, waiting times for new patients in London at gender identity clinics will soon reach 26 years. That isn't a mistake. This data is freely available online if you'd like to check it. 26 years. With this in mind, our question going forward is as follows. What changes to ensure situations such as this don't occur? Situations where individuals who require life-saving treatment for the sake of their personal mental health or general welfare in a transphobic environment are denied access for 26 years. What levels out the uphill struggle? What does effective and measurable change look like? To ensure that future generations of transgender individuals do not have to develop as thick a skin as women like Kat Burton? These are not hypothetical questions. There are answers, and trailblazers like Kat have worked hard to make the necessary knowledge and tools available to those who wish to make that change happen. What should be taken from this episode is not discouragement, it is a righteous anger. A sense of injustice that motivates trans people and allies alike to organise and resist as a collective. Our solidarity and desire for change can, should and must extend beyond our awareness of all that is unjust. Implementing direct action requires us to work off of models of what a better world for transgender people looks like. In episode 2, we answer that crucial question. How do we make the United Kingdom a safe country for its transgender community? This episode of the Slash Queer Podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith, co-scripted and produced by myself and Matt Thompson, and hosted as always by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Kat Burson, from the Gender Identity Research and Education Society for her contributions to this episode. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon subscribers. Your continued faith and commitment in this project is how we've now reached engagement in 111 countries around the world, which is almost unfathomable for what was once such a wee project. If you're not a patron and you want to support the podcast, you can find the slash queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. We are still selling our merchandise and are accepting donations via coffee, and you can find the links to both in the description for this episode. For those of you who continue to like, share, and listen to this podcast, thank you. Your support means the world to our little team. This episode was recorded on location in London, the United Kingdom. Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at slash queer or email us at slash queer at outlook.com. As always, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer.